yes, the statues are part of one's history, uh, but I don't think that's necessarily a reason to leave them up. I lost relatives in the Holocaust, and I would be offended, and I would hope other people would be offended if I saw statues of Hitler here in the United States or in Germany or anywhere else, even though he indisputably was a part of history. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, podcast from the ONB Institute at UC Berkeley. My name is Mark Abizade, and in this episode, we'll hear from Adam Hochschild, a prominent historian, journalist, and a best-selling author who wrote King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa, among many other books. He's also a lecturer in Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. Professor Hochschild gives us his take on the efforts around the world to topple statues and other monuments that memorialize historical figures known for their brutality and racism, including the campaign in Belgium to remove statues of their former king, King Leopold II, who plundered Central Africa, leading to the deaths of millions of people. Here was our conversation. So Professor Hoshiel, I came across some of your remarks last week that caught my attention about the protests that erupted following the killing of George Floyd, and specifically about the targeting and toppling of these statues, not just in this country, but around the world that pay tribute to racists and colonizers. And the one I want to focus on is King Leopold II in Belgium, and his statue from what I'm reading is like everywhere in the country and they did take one down recently in Antwerp and there's some other ones that there's a lot of campaigns to remove them. And um, you wrote a book, actually a really famous book in the 1990s about King Leopold II called King Leopold's Ghost and uh, the plunder of uh, the Congo, the campaigns of terror in Central Africa. Uh, so just to contextualize these events that are happening in Europe and across the world, can you just start us off real briefly telling us about King Leopold II, who he was, what he did in the Congo, and the significance of the targeting of these statues that paid tribute to him in Belgium? Sure. Well, King Leopold II became king of Belgium in 1865. He was a young man, 30 years old. Uh, and he was a very ambitious greedy, extremely smart, clever guy. Uh, but he became king at a time when <clears throat> in Europe, it wasn't so much fun to be a monarch anymore because you had to share par power with elected parliaments and, and with a cabinet and the prime minister that wasn't necessarily of your choosing. So like all European monarchs, he was gradually losing power to the electorate he wanted some place in the world where he could rule supreme and where he could make a lot of money. And in the 1870s, the scramble for Africa, as it was called, was just beginning, where the various countries in Europe uh, had their eyes on the African continent as a source of great riches. And in a over a span of remarkably few years, uh, most of the continent was colonized by the European countries. Uh, Leopold got in on this process early on by hiring the explorer Henry Morton Stanley, the man who had found Livingston, to essentially stake out the boundaries for him of a vast colony in Central Africa, the same territory roughly that is the Democratic Republic of Congo today. And uh, by 1885, Leopold had gotten all the major nations of the world, starting with the United States, to recognize this territory as belonging to him 
personally. It was not a Belgian colony. It was not, it did not become the Belgian Congo until 23 years later. For its first 23 years of existence, it was Leopold's personal possession. He referred to himself as its proprietor. And during that time, he made a huge fortune, estimated at well over a billion dollars in today's American dollars, by essentially turning much of the male population of that territory into forced laborers. The commodities he was after was first ivory, and then rubber. Uh, in the 1880s, they invented the inflatable bicycle tire, and very soon after that, the automobile, and this set off an enormous demand for rubber all over the world. And rubber was something which in the rainforest of equatorial Africa grew wild, not as trees, but in the form of vines that twined themselves around a palm tree or another tree up to where they could get some sunlight. And what Leopold did was he sent his private army into village after village uh, many contingents of his, his private army, and they would take the women of a village hostage, chain them up in order to force the men of each village to go into the rainforest, first for days and eventually weeks at a time, gathering a monthly quota of wild rubber. So he essentially created a forced labor system, which existed for many years for gathering wild rubber, and it was from this that he made his fortune. And so how do you interpret the significance of this movement today to remove these monuments in Belgium? And actually, before we get into that, you wrote in your book um, that millions of people were actually killed during this, this period. Can you talk a little bit about that, about the, 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 those death tolls of that campaign? Yeah, there was a horrendous death toll from this forced labor system that was exacerbated by the fact that, as everywhere in colonial Africa, the Europeans uh, often introduced diseases that the Africans had no resistance to. But the forced labor system was particularly deadly because when you have in a particular village, the women are all being held hostage. The men are in the rainforest desperately trying to earn their quota of, gather their monthly quota of wild rubber. There's nobody to plant and harvest crops, to go hunting, to go fishing, to do all the things for which a, a community in that area normally feeds itself. So there was near famine in much of the country. In addition, a lot of these rubber gatherers were essentially worked to death. Uh, plus, uh, tens of thousands of people were killed in failed uprisings against the, the regime. And then when you, and, and tens, possibly hundreds of thousands more died because they fled into the rainforest uh, to avoid the forced labor system, but uh, the only places they could go were deep in the forest where there was no food, no shelter, and many of them died. And then when you have a large traumatized population, uh, you know, where many people don't have enough to eat, people succumb to diseases that they otherwise would have su survived. Plus, when you have women turned into hostages and men turned into forced laborers, people stop having children. So for all these reasons, uh, the deaths, the deaths from disease, the deaths in combat, uh, the uh, drop in the birth rate, demographers estimate that between about 1880, when Leopold started to get his hands on this territory, and 1920 or so, when the worst of the forced labor system began to come to an end, 
the population of the territory was slashed by roughly 10 million people, cut in half. So I want to ask a little bit about uh, what you think about the resistance to removing these monuments in Belgium and other, also other countries. And um, I wanted to make a connection, and maybe you can tell me if you think this is uh, an appropriate uh, connection to make. But when you published your book on King Leopold, wasn't there quite a bit of resistance in Belgium? I mean, wasn't it a little bit controversial that people were kind of pushing back against it and, um, you know, that it challenged the kind of the official story over there? And so what, I mean, what do you make of that? And what, uh, how do you, I guess, interpret um, this kind of like pushback against this movement and what you think that says about those, those governments and those societies? Well, I think Belgium, like all colonial countries, tended to sanitize and glorify its colonial past. Here in the United States, for example, you don't find very many people talking and you don't find very many high school history books talking about the brutal colonial war the United States waged 1899 to 1902 to take over the Philippines. Instead, you'll find a much more sanitized story about how we generously gave the Philippines their independence in 1945 and so on. Well, same thing in Europe. Uh, Britain, France, Belgium, uh, Germany was also a colonial power, pre-World War I Germany. You know, they tend to have a pretty sanitized version of the colonial past, ignore the fact that in most uh, African colonies, forced labor was the foundation stone of the economy. In Belgium, I think this was particularly so because this was a small country that had quite a large colony, really the, the largest territory in sub-Saharan Africa. And the Belgians who went there uh, as priests, missionaries, doctors, civil servants, army officers, like to think they were doing their patriotic duty and civilizing the uncivilized and all that sort of thing. So Belgian school books had always portrayed Belgian colonialism as a very, very benign, uplifting, helpful thing. Uh, when my book appeared in 1998, it was published in this country and simultaneously in French and Dutch, the, the two main languages of Belgium. It created a bit of a stir, not because I told anything new, because I think all of this story was certainly fully known to serious scholars, historians of Central Africa, and indeed several Belgian historians have been very helpful to me. Uh, steering me to research materials as I was writing the book. But because it was a book written for a general audience, uh, uh, it was really the first book written about this aspect of history for a general non-scholarly audience uh, in close to 100 years. So it created quite a big stir in Belgium. And in a peculiar way, it's very unfair. I think a book written by an American creates much more of a stir than one written by somebody else because we are the world's superpower. And I think the identical book had it been written by an Albanian or a Hungarian or a Sri Lankan, people might not have paid much attention. So the book received sympathetic reviews in Belgian newspapers because the newspapers would usually give it to their Africa correspondent to review and any 
anybody who knows something about Africa knows that this was a pretty terrible piece of history. There was tremendous pushback, though, because there was a very strong sort of old colonials lobby in Belgium. These were people who had worked in the Congo when it was a Belgian colony, and they had a federation of former, you know, army officers who were stationed there, former Congo civil servants, former employees of this or that company, uh, something like 24 different old colonial groups in the federation. And they issued an enormous denial, you know, a, a, a denunciation of my book. Um, which, you know, I was happy to see it get some more publicity. Uh, but then I think it helped kicked off a reaction in Belgium because something else happened around the same time. The year after King Leopold's Ghost was published, a Belgian author, Ludo de Witt, published a book on Belgian complicity in the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, the independent Congo's first democratically chosen prime minister. And uh, Belgian and American forces had conspired in his overthrow and assassination. And I think the two books together started something of a reconsideration of this period of history in Belgium. Uh, and also, as in much of Europe, there is a population of African descent in Belgium. Nowhere near as large a proportion of the population as it is in Britain or France, so, for example, but uh, enough so that there are people who feel that their own history is not being adequately acknowledged. And then when George Floyd was so brutally murdered and that, that killing was captured on video for the whole world to see, it ricocheted around the world in a way that I think made people in many countries question, you know, are there parts of our history that haven't been sufficiently acknowledged? Parts of our experience in the present day that aren't sufficiently acknowledged? And one reflection of this was the toppling of statues. In part, I think, because taking down a statue is a pretty easy thing to do rooting out systemic racism that's embedded both in European societies and our own is going to be much harder. There's a lot of debate going on over, should we remove them, should we not? And the people who who defend the statues, they say, you know, we need to keep these statues because they're a part of our history. Removing them is like erasing our history. Even if we don't agree with it, it's still something that we need to acknowledge, whether we're talking about the Confederate monuments in this country or King Leopold or whatever. But you're a historian. As a historian, how would you respond to that argument? Well, uh, yes, the statues are part of one's history, uh, but I don't think that's necessarily a reason to leave them up. Uh, you know, I lost relatives in the Holocaust and I would be offended, and I would hope other people would be offended if I saw statues of Hitler here in the United States or in Germany or anywhere else, even though he indisputably was a part of history. So in general, I'm glad to see the statues come down. Uh, I, I think it, it raises a question of how much history is all around us that we take for granted street names, place names, places we wore a plaque on a building that we walk by every day and don't even think about. 
there's actually a, a, a scholar, an American scholar who's worked in Belgium, who's tabulated a list of more than 440 statues, busts, monuments, plaques, street names in various places in this rather small country that all commemorate figures from the colonial period, you know, Belgians who, who worked in the Congo, starting with King Leopold. So they're all over the place there. And I think it's, it's, it's probably time for them to come down and for those names to be changed. And I would say the same thing about the statues of Confederate heroes in this country, because I can understand how, you know, an American whose ancestors were slaves is just as offended by seeing a statue of Robert E. Lee as I would be, and I hope they would be by seeing a statue of Hitler. Uh, and I think that also raises the question of what statues should we put up in their place? And that forces us to do another kind of examination of history to look for who some of the forgotten heroes are. And again, listening to a lot of um, interviews from you know this debate, I think that they go even further and say it's not only is it offensive, but but it's actually like an attack on their being. And I can give you an example. Um, one of over the weekend, I listened to an interview with a black woman from Belgium. She was actually uh, the director of a museum there, and one of the things she was saying was was um, you know she and others were, were talking about these monuments as as they're being like a spiritual element to it too. We all know that those statues have a symbolic power. And I'm totally convinced that for some people, um, they, are, they don't want us to demonstrate or they don't want uh, people to demonstrate and to say stop with these statues. Not because they want to keep those statues there. They want to keep us in our statues of inferiority. So I, I bring that up and, and what I'm hearing is that it really captures the sentiments of a lot of these people uh, around the world who are, who especially the ancestors of people who were directly affected by, by these figures, whether we're talking about Native Americans in, in this country who want to see Columbus gone or we're talking about the Confederates or, or whoever, is it's, um, it's, it's really about dominance. It's about the, the defenders of the statue just wanting to maintain uh, like a system of white supremacy. And so you can imagine that it's just more than offensive. It's actually trying to preserve these archaic systems. So what do you make of that perspective? Well, I think that's certainly the case in, in some of these cases. I mean, I think there are, there are a lot of cases where nobody thinks in particular, you know, about the meaning of a particular statue. And I'm sure that there are some statues of you know, obscure colonial figures in small Belgian towns where everybody's forgotten who this person originally was. But that's certainly not the case for the Confederate statues in the United States. Uh, you know, there are millions of, of uh, white Southerners who, who know who Robert E. Lee was and who Stonewall Jackson was uh, and who in some deep way inside, I think, are nostalgic for uh, uh, you know, a time before the end of slavery. Uh, it's hard to get people to say that openly, uh, but I do think that's there, and I do think that's one reason why uh, so many white Southerners are, are attached to those statues and why so many uh, black Southerners and, 
black Americans elsewhere in the country are offended by. The last, I guess one of the last questions I want to ask is, um, is, well, I want to present an idea and then get your thoughts on it. And it's about um, if you think that there's an opportunity to use history and the movements that we're currently seeing here in this country and around the world um, to actually uh, create a path towards reconciliation and healing. And um, I'll, I'll give you an example. The example I want to use is actually about uh, genocide in Rwanda. And what's happening today, what's been happening since then, is that the government's been undertaking these initiatives to try to um, to try to heal the country, to try to bring different ethnicities together and say it's not the fault of this group or that group. It's actually a product of, of uh, colonization. It's actually the, the Belgians actually created the system that led up to this. And I think that similar things were happening in, in South Africa after apartheid. And so, I mean, the question is, is in these kinds of examples, do you see opportunities now to use history to be able to at least um, set the stage for that, for some kind of reconciliation and healing? Well, I'm not sure I'd take Rwanda as a model. It's true that the mass killings have stopped. There have been none since the genocide. But it is a it is a dictatorship, uh, and it is a dictatorship that is basically under the rule of one ethnic group, the the, the, the Tutsi. Um, so I wouldn't take it as a model, but I do think that honestly, looking at history is always something that's a wonderful thing to do because you can't understand who we are now unless you understand how we got here, and how we got here in the United States today involves all kinds of things. They involve the experience of slavery for the ancestors of black Americans. Uh, they involve, you know, the experience of, of being conquered for the ancestors of, of Native Americans. Those things are all part of our history. And I think the debate over symbols like statues and so forth forces us to acknowledge that uh, and to think about what parts of history we want to honor. Uh, I think it's fine to take down these old statues, but a more important question is how we teach history in schools and who we put up statues of instead. Who are the people we want to choose for our heroes and heroines? And what does that tell us about parts of American history, or if we're talking about other countries, their history, that um, uh, could be remembered instead. Uh, in Belgium, for example, now at last, Patrice Lumumba, the deposed Congolese prime minister, has a square named after him in Brussels. Uh, but uh, he's got a long way to go before he catches up with the dozens and dozens of things that are named after King Leopold. Here in the United States, you know, I'd love to see those statues of Robert E. Lee come down and see statues go up of great figures from American history like uh, Ida B. Wells, the great anti-lynching crusader. Um, there are many people like that that we could honor and I hope do it in a way that would make school children interested, would make people think about, you know, why didn't I hear more about this person when I was in school? 
And that wraps up this episode of Who Belongs. I'd like to thank our guest, Adam Hoeschild, a historian, journalist, and author of numerous books, including King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa. For a transcript of this interview, you visit our website at belonging.berkeley.edu slash who belongs. Thank you for listening. <laughs>